she changed my world, made me alive again, and it made me feel again because I didn't have any emotions anymore. Everything was so cold. Friends of mine had passed away and I couldn't cry. I didn't cry at all. I just felt numb. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Hello, this is Bob Buck. Welcome to another conversation in our series of segments in the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our guest today is Jim Hackbarth. Jim lives in Newburgh, that is a, a rural community not too far from Milwaukee, and he is joining us today from his home computer, Jim, thanks for joining us. Hi, Bob. Hello to you. Jim is uh, an Army veteran. He served with the 1st Cavalry Division in Vietnam from October of 68 to October of 1969. Let's start, Jim, if you don't mind. Tell us where you grew up and uh, went to high school, for instance, and and when you graduated. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born and raised in Milwaukee. I lived on the north side, Hopkins and Titonia right in that area there, went to, went to Hopkins Street School of the Elementary, and then I actually went to Rufus King for a high school, graduated in January 67. And what happened after that? Were you drafted right after high school? No, I worked, I worked for a year for American Can, then I got my draft notice, and then I, I actually joined. You enlisted before you would have been drafted? Yes, I didn't. I saw these guys walking through the swamps with the rifles over their heads, and I figured I'd better join <laughs> and pick my job rather than be in the infantry. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to find out how that worked for you in just a minute. But first, how about family? Did your dad serve in the military or, or other relatives? No, my, my father had polio when he was younger, so he was, was in the military. And how about your family? Were there brothers and sisters? And two brothers. Both of them were in the military. Both of them were in the Army. And were they older or younger? Yep, older. They were older. Had they, either of them, or both returned before you were drafted? Yes. One uh, had a problem in basic training and had medical discharge. And the other brother, he got enlisted, and then he went to Korea. Oh, interesting. So neither of them ended up in Vietnam, just you. I was the only one that went to Vietnam. I'll bet there were still some stories to share, though. <laughs> I was a lucky one. <laughs> So you got the draft notice. You're working a full-time job after high school, and uh, American Can was a was a fairly sizable um, employer in the Milwaukee area back then. And as the name would imply, they made uh, cans for all kinds of beverages, et cetera. And these were good-paying jobs, as I recall, weren't they? 
Yeah, uh, actually, one of my uncles told me I should apply there. I went there on Thursday and started working on Monday. Wow. So when you saw the handwriting on the wall, so to speak, with the potential draft notice, and you enlisted, you left a good a good paying job to do that. Is that right? Yeah, well, I had been drafted anyway, so I figured might as well. You know, one of my friends were getting drafted. They were in the military, and uh, I figured I was going to be in the military anyway, so I, I went and joined. How old were you when you joined? I was uh, 18 and a half. And what happened? Where did you go for training to begin with? I went to uh, basic training at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Was that a big basic training base? Yes, I was. Uh, actually, it was a home of the 101st, mostly artillery. And how long were you there? And then what happened? Well, eight weeks at basic training, graduated. And then uh, I didn't get to come home on leave. I went directly to Fort Rucker, Alabama for helicopter training. So that was your assigned job? You were going to be, what did you do with helicopters? Yeah, my AIT was helicopter maintenance. Went down there, Fort Rucker, Alabama. And what were you trained to do in terms of maintenance? Just keep these machines uh, running? To, do, to actually do maintenance on helicopters. Mm -hmm. well, I went through school for eight weeks, and then they said they had to go, go for another 16 weeks. Why was that? It was for advanced training. Okay. Then they came along with this idea. They said, you're starting new training for helicopter door gunners. It was only going to be three weeks. I thought, well, okay, I wasn't doing very good. I, didn't, I wasn't a very good student. <laughs> so, so I said, okay, it's got to be easier. I wanted to fly anyways. I was kind of interested in it. So then I went and listened for door gunner school. All we would do was take M60s apart and put them back together until we knew we could do it blindfolded just about. Wow. We got to fly one time and shot 100 rounds out of a machine gun. That's all we did one, one time. And that was the extent of your gun, your uh, gunner training. Yeah, that was the extent of it. They didn't tell you, you know, they didn't tell you everything in school, of course. You know, basically, once you got to Vietnam, it was on-the-job training, pretty much. So, in between times, did you? Uh, when did you get your orders for Vietnam? Right, af right after I got out of school, I went home for a 21-day leave, and then I uh, went to Fort Stewart, Washington, and that's where we flew out of. During that uh, leave when you were home, uh, how did your family react? They knew that you'd be going to Vietnam. What was their response to that? Well, there was a kind of a family meeting right towards the, towards the end before I left. My brothers and, and their wives and that, and a uh, couple of my uncles and everything. So it was, it was kind of nice. I mean, the send-off was okay. I mean, my mother, of course, she was worried about me. Nobody else said too much. You know, I, you know they, they didn't know what to say, I guess. You know, you're going, you're going to war, you know. Did you get the feeling they were proud of you? Yeah, I know my uncles were there, both, both in the Korean War. So you got some pats on the back, and then off you go, huh? Yeah, pretty, pretty much. At that point, do you remember how you felt? Were you scared? Yeah, of course, you know, you, the unknown is always scary, <laughs> And, uh, you know, Fort Stewart, just, you just get there and then it's pretty much where you're staying over there overnight or two nights, kind of divide you up and put you on, on planes and off you go. So I know that some uh, veterans uh, traveled to Vietnam on troop ships. Did you have a troop ship or did you fly? To fly on a commercial airliner. Do you remember which one? Uh, 
if my thoughts are right, I think it was a brand of airlines. <laughs> 707. And I saw him leaving on, leaving on a jet plane, you know, <laughs> Peter, Paul and Mary. Sure. So where did you land in Vietnam and what happened next? Well, first we got to Hawaii. We landed there to refuel and I thought it was kind of hot. Then we got to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines and we landed there because there was a problem with the airplane. So they had to stop there, refuel and do some maintenance on the plane. I suppose change crew because it was a 17 and a half hour flight. Wow. Then we ended up in Cameron Bay where we landed in Vietnam. 115 degrees. Oh my. <laughs> where was Cameron Bay? Was that near Saigon? That was farther south, like down the Mekong Delta area. So there's this plane full of guys, you land in Vietnam. What was your first reaction to landing in Vietnam other than the heat? Do you remember? Oh, it was a very big base that they had down there. And uh, I suppose it's like where all the munitions and everything, a lot of the shipping came in right there as a shipping port also. But it was so hot. <laughs> we were still wearing our things from basic training yet because you got your uniforms and your boots and everything down there. Then you were only there for can't remember if it was overnight or a day or two, and then uh, got assigned to our companies. And where did you go from uh, from Cameron? Up to Ankeg, that's where the first cab was uh, based. Where in the country was it exactly? In the middle that or was in, north? That was in, I think it's two core, and it was Italian command there, right there, and then uh, was there for a couple of days as we got our weapons, and we got re recited uh, M16s in to make sure we knew what we were doing. And then uh, I got assigned to our, our units. And did you get assigned to a helicopter team at that point? Yeah, I went to, uh, where, where were we, Quantry uh, up there. It was uh, first cab, first cab division, of course, and uh, the Alpha Company, A229, Black Bandits. What type of helicopter did you fly on? It was a, a Huey UH-1, UH, I can't remember if it was 1D or 1Hs. I think it was both at that time. This would be the helicopter that we often see in photos from Vietnam, et cetera, that was used to uh, not only provide uh, military and armament support, but also to uh, ferry the wounded with the Army, was it not? Wounded and also troop transport doing uh, LZ insertions. Do you remember your first flight? Yeah, that was a scary one. <laughs> we went out that day. And uh, actually ended up in like, it was kind of like, but we were too far from the Ashaw Valley and it was in the mountains. And uh, we went out there and we were supposed to go pick somebody up and drop some supplies off. And we hovered into about a 200 foot hole and a pilot said, how's my, how's my six? And I thought, I don't know, what, what's your six? I didn't know what a six was at the time. And then he says, well, what about my three o'clock? And I kept thinking, okay, three o'clock, six o'clock. As they're talking about a clock, I says, I don't know. Because in basic, in the AIT, they didn't, they didn't teach you that. You know, they didn't tell you about watching the blades and the tail rotors and all that. So it was kind of like the on-the-job training, but it was kind of funny to begin with. The guy says, well, so look at the tips of the blades. Well, things are going so fast, you couldn't see them, you know, but they were either painted yellow or white. I think it was yellow. You could barely make out the yellow tip of them so that you didn't hit a tree or mountain. Of course, the six was your tail rotor. So these are the things they didn't teach you in school. But we hovered down and we were sitting there hovering above. They blew off a couple of trees. They wrapped them with C4 and blew them down so that they could hover down in there and pick, pick these guys up and drop supplies off. 
Then we flew out of there. We flew to a we flew to a, a top of a mountain where they had a, a communication relay station. That looked that looked like a look like a quarter for that's where we were landing on. <laughs> and of course, they had those big whips again. Of course, the pilots asking me where how's my six and where's my. And I kind of, I finally got the idea what was going on, so I kind of kind of started learning what, what I was what I was supposed to do. Man. And the other thing, they're hovering down, and you know you're in, on a mountain, so they could be sitting right on the side of the mountain, they're looking right at you, and all you got in front of you is M60 and your chest plate, you know. So, I mean, I didn't like the mountains at all. How often did you go out on missions? Well, you didn't go out every single day. You know, there's days that you didn't do hardly anything. You know, you just basically worked around the camp. We were only in uh, Quantry for about a month, little over a month, and they decided to transfer the whole division down south. So we went up to Tainan, which was in three quarter, about 35 miles northwest of uh, Saigon. But we went up, you know, every, every few days you would go up on missions. Sometimes you had night missions you went on. What was scarier, daytime or nighttime? Nighttime was kind of cool. You could see the tracers pretty easy. <laughs> it was scary because it was so dark and you really couldn't see a damn thing, you know. So would you, you see there. these tracers coming up at you? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, the green tracers from the AKs and, you know, always had to worry about that. So I assume that you were flying without any lights or anything like that. So yeah, basically, no, no lights. Well, they used to call them hunter killer missions. You fly with no lights on, or you fly with lights on, and then the Cobras would be above you. And the Cobra was uh, a heavily armed helicopter. Right. So if they got shot at, they'd come in after them. So basically, you were the bait. We were the bait. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> not, not a good, not a good idea. So you know, learning to be a door gunner was not. No, it wasn't any fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not what I thought it was going to be. When did that occur to you? Right from the start. Well, we went first hovered down in a 200-foot hole, and was looking at the mountains. I'm going, okay, this is not going to be fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it was the job I, I trained for, so. How about your comrades? Did they offer support? Your fellow soldiers, were they helpful? I had uh, two more, two guys from my, my class came in the same company with me. So we kind of hung together. But, you know, the other guys were pretty good. I mean, they started teaching you. My uh, my crew chief, which I actually still see him, uh, kind of trained me up on what to do and everything. So that was nice. You still see him today? Yeah, we had. Well, of course, this year because of COVID. But, uh, you know, every year since 2003, I've been going to reunions. I belong to the Vietnam uh, crew members, helicopter crew members association. And uh, we have reunions all over the country. And I met him in 2003. He was on the first, my first helicopter is down actually in Peru, Indiana, at a helicopter museum down there. Really? Yeah. What was it like to see that? It was kind of, kind of like frightening because they saw it all the bullet holes where, where they put the patches in, you know, but uh, it was quite different to, to see it again. 501, it was the tail number on it. What was the scariest part of that job, Jim? Scariest part was uh, going out and doing resupply when uh, units were in, in contact. Because, you know, you could get shot up, and uh, but, you know, that part of the job. You had to go out and take ammunition out and resupply and sometimes pick up wounded, sometimes pick up the KIAs, you know, and that was, uh, that was some of the worst stuff. When you were flying, uh, according to this, uh, the pictures I've seen, you wore a rather large helmet, did you not? Right. 
So were you able to hear, uh, actually hear bullets hitting the side of your aircraft or hear uh, other soldiers speaking or, or crying out in pain when they were loading. Well, you could on. hear as a pilot and a crew chief. You couldn't hear anything else, really. Like I said, you could only see tracers. You couldn't see, couldn't really see anything else or, or hear anything. Mm-hmm. Well, and plus, the helicopter's so loud to begin with, all the vibrations and the sound. Well, you know what the rotors sound like from a Huey. Everybody that's served in Vietnam should know that. And when your uh, helicopter would ferry troops out into the bush, do you remember what those guys looked like? Yeah, they were, they were pretty loaded up with weapons and ammo and, uh, you know, their packs and everything. You know, we I, I can't remember if it was six or eight guys we could get on a chopper. You know, I think there was like three or four across the front seat and then two on both uh, both doors hanging on for dear life. And were they sweating? Did they look calm? What was their what was their facial expression like? Some look, looked like they were just used to it. They, they've been there before. And then the other ones, you could t- kind of tell the newbies, you know, because they were, their eyes were bulging out of their heads kind of because of what we were what we were doing. I mean, going into a, a LZ, uh, guns guns open, you know, and everything else uh, blasting away, they, they kind of knew something was going on, you know. I don't know if people have seen the apocalypse now the, when they come into the assault. That's kind of like what it was, you know, but... Uh, you're going in with either from six to 12 ships into an LZ landing zone. You got the covers, you got artillery, you got everything going on. It's quite, quite, quite exciting. Adrenaline filled rush is what I call it, you know. Mm-hmm. So it only lasts a few minutes, but then when it's over, it's just like, wow, <laughs> you yeah. got the hell out of there, you know. That's all right. I, that's why I didn't mind. I know I was dropping him off in bad, bad situation, but we were always happy to get the hell out of there, you know. <laughs> During the time that you were over in Vietnam, did you communicate with your family at home? Did you write letters from time to time? I did for a while, but after a while, you're like, okay, what what do you got to write about? You know, it's just, uh, I had a girlfriend for a while and she wrote me a Dear John. <laughs> you know, but uh, that was typical because you were gone and, oh, well, you know, back home, they do whatever they want, you know. Yeah, I, I wrote my, my brothers and sisters, my brothers didn't write me at all. And uh, I wasn't into really writing letters. And then what, what do I tell them what the terrible things are going on? I mean, it's not like it was a was a vacation kind of thing, you know. So did you share some of those experiences with your brothers? Yeah, about in 1995. Oh, I, I'm speaking of while you were over in Vietnam with uh, family and letters or anything? No. Why not? It was too horrific to explain what you were doing and how things were going on. Did you get uh, a break during your tour in Vietnam? Did you go on R and R for a week somewhere? Yeah, I went to, went to actually went to Singapore. And how was that? That was beautiful. That was used to be an English colony, and uh, it was quite beautiful. And uh, I stayed at a country club. Hmm. How was it going back to Vietnam after R and R? I really didn't want to. <laughs> of course, none of us did after a week of being on R and R. It's like really do I have to go back? That was kind of kind of frightening, but you because now now you're you're in survival mode and you're kind of back to you felt like you're back in the world again, being a being an actual human being again. At least for a little while, right? Yeah, for a short time. Yeah, we are speaking with Jim Hackbarth about his experiences 
in uh, Vietnam. Jim served with the uh, first cav, the first cavalry of the United States Army in Vietnam as a door gunner on a helicopter. Let's move ahead a little bit, Jim, to the coming home phase. Your tour is finished in Vietnam. When did you get word that it was time for you to get ready to leave Vietnam and what happened next? Well, I had a little bit of problem in Vietnam because I, I, I got busted for drugs. <laughs> hate to say that, but it's true. And uh, so I got held over for a little bit, not very long, but I got Article 15 before I came home. And what is that? That was disciplinary possession of a, like a couple, couple what they call joints, you know, now everybody had a different thing to do over there. You either drank, did drugs, or I always tell people you sat in a corner praying to God that nothing ever happened to you, you know, and hoping that everything would be over with. So as a result of that, did you come home sooner or at about the same time you would have? No, I, I came home like a, maybe a week, a little, a little over a week later. But I actually actually got got back to the United States and uh, I went uh, stayed in California for five days with a friend of mine. What was it like coming back to the states? Of course, you know you came down to Thompson Air Force Base down in Saigon. We left from there. It was 120 degrees on the tarmac that day, and you're walking on that asphalt. It was actually kind of like walking on rubber. It's pretty exciting, though. You know, they put you in khakis, you know, brand new khakis, and got everything, you know, all your medals and stuff and everything. Of course, once you get on the plane, it takes off. Everyone's excited and happy, you know. <laughs> but then it's kind of like it, it all hits you that it's over with. You know, you're, you're leaving you're leaving everybody behind, you know, which at that time you didn't think of. You know, you're only thinking about yourself and how glad you were just to be on a flight home. So do you mean to say that at this time of just great joy and happiness, there was also some sadness that you were leaving? Yeah, because, you know, this is something you experienced for a year. You had real close friends that you knew you were leaving, and they were they were still going to continue dealing with what you were doing, dealing with every day. You know, so it wasn't, it's kind of sad to leave your friends behind. And then how about back in the United States? Now you visit with a friend for a little while, and then you return home to Milwaukee. What was that homecoming like? My mother got remarried. My grandfather died while I was over in Vietnam. My uh, father died before I went to Vietnam, and uh, so did my grandmother. Both both of them passed away before I went to Vietnam. My my grandfather died while I was over there, and of course I didn't know about it for till my mother sent me a, a letter with a picture of him in his coffin, which was not, you know, really really sad. And then uh, I got home, and she got remarried while I was over in Vietnam to a, a, one of my friends, my good friend's uh, father. And it was really weird because I came came off a flight one night, so I was flying out all night and was, went to bed and sleeping in the morning. And somebody said, your, your brother's here. And I thought, who the hell are you talking about? And my brothers both were already military. Here was my stepbrother. He came in my hooch and he woke me, he woke me up, he slapped me on my chest and I jumped up and punched him <laughs> and sent him across the barracks. <laughs> you never wake up a sleeping, sleeping guy that's been on, on, out all night long, you know. So, yeah, so when I got home, it was just my mother and my stepfather met me at the airport. Uh and how about friends? Did friends come to see you and, and ask you about your experiences at all? 
after after I got home, I started going and seeing people. They didn't come to see me, but you know, I kind of contacted them to let them know I was home because I had a one buddy. He was back. He was he got wounded over in Vietnam, and uh, I had a good, really good friend of mine that we hung around after high school and everything, and got in trouble and everything. He uh, committed suicide. So, were the friendships different than before you left? It was a little bit more strained, I think, because we really didn't want to talk about our experiences and the people that didn't go, of course, they didn't understand what you've been through and how to react. They didn't know how to talk to you, I guess, you know, I just because uh, they were worried, more worried about what, you know, their lives and what they were buying and how they were, their work and everything else. That stuff, none of that stuff concerned me, you know. I still had a year and a half to go because I, I enlisted. It, it sounds lonely, coming home it, it was i was basically on my own most of the time but one of my good friends we hung around for a while i was home for actually it was i was home for 40 days because i spent five days out in california but uh it was a 45 day leave after you got out of vietnam and uh, i supposed to report to my next station and two days before christmas well i stayed i stayed home for about 30 some days and I finally got tired of it and i left and i bought a car <laughs> with my money that I had for Vietnam. And uh, I drove down to Alabama because I hung out with a guy down there and I knew where he lived. And so I wanted to go see him. And uh, so I left the, left home about 10 days before I was supposed to and drove down to Al- Alabama. It was Gadsden, Gadsden, Alabama. That's where he lived. It was north of Birmingham. <laughs> and uh, went down and stayed. I didn't know exactly where his house was because I couldn't remember. So I went to where I knew where his father worked. And I went in there and asked for JW, and then the guy says, oh, he's out on his truck. He's a bottle gas delivery man. And uh, the guy called him, and he says, he says, Jim's here. He says, he says oh, my God. He says, he says, give me five minutes. He says, I'll be right back. <laughs> he came back, and we shared a, a bottle of whiskey that night because it was a dry county, and I had stopped in Tennessee and bought five bottles of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> was that a good hom- homecoming for you? That was a better homecoming than at home itself. Uh, my actual homecoming, my mother had a had a had a, meal, a big meal with all my all the family and everything. And because they found out that I had done drugs, my uncles, both my uncles, who were one was a marine and one was an army, and over in Korea, they asked. They said, "Well, you know, they all they did, all the people knew back home was did you kill women and children, and did you smoke did you smoke drugs, and you were a crazy Vietnam vet." That must have been a hard homecoming. My mother told him to get the F out of her house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, talk about my son that way. You know, I thought I'd be proud because I did one did my service and I didn't get that respect. Did you ever? I got more respect when I went down to Alabama and saw saw my buddy's parents than I did from anybody else. They actually appreciated me and being homecoming and and, and seeing my buddy again, you know, that was, that was really a joy. And then after that visit, you came back up to Milwaukee? No, I had to go back. I, I was on my way to my next station, which okay. was Fort Stewart, Savannah, Georgia. And how long were you there? I was only there from uh, December until about, uh, I think it was March or April. And I got assigned to Germany. Still with helicopters? Actually, it was a fixed wing unit, <laughs> <laughs> and 
the guy says, he says, well, what do you, you didn't ever went to school for, I said, I don't know anything about fixed wing. I said, you got any helicopters or, or I said, you need a door gunner? And he says, no, he says, <laughs> he says, no, we're not shooting Germans over here anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. It was kind of funny. So, so like, they tried to teach me something about fixed wing. I didn't really care about it too much. You know, I was just kind of, actually, I was kind of tired of the military by that time, you know, all the spit shine and everything. And I actually went and uh, I, I should skip something because in Savannah, Georgia, I told my first sergeant I wanted to go back to Vietnam. You did? I didn't, I didn't like being back. I wanted mm-hmm. to be back with my friends. But I got my orders for Germany before I got orders to go back to Vietnam. So once I got to Germany, it's kind of like all uh, beer, beer, and round-eyed women. I said, I think I'll stay here. <laughs> <laughs> that bond that you had with your comrades in Vietnam... Uh, and then it ended, of course, when you returned to the United States. Did you ever rekindle that? Did you ever get together again, other than with the uh, fellow in Alabama? Not, not immediately. It took me many, many years before. I, I didn't even know about, about the, the Helicopter Crew Members Association until uh, 2000. I went to the wall in 2002. I think that was the 20th, 20th anniversary of the wall. And... Uh, I went with a group from out of West Bend, a Vietnam veterans group that I, I joined. So the group of us went to the wall to, to see the wall and uh, for Veterans Day. And I had found out that there was a hotel where the first cab was staying. I thought in, in Alexandria, uh, Virginia. So me and my buddy, we were out drinking one night. And I said, you know, I said, What's, I'm going to go to Alexandria. He said, what are you going to do there? I said, I'm going to find the first cab. So we went down to uh, to the uh, subway, you know, and we actually were standing on the wrong platform. The guy says, no, you got to go the other way. Because <laughs> we, we had a few beers in us. And uh, I got to uh, Alexandria, and I went to the, this Crown Plaza Hotel where they were staying. And I got down there, and this whole bar was was full of first cab with the guys with the hats on, you know, their Stenson's on. And having hooting and hollering, you know, and I went into the hotel and I went to the lobby and I went up to the desk. And I said, is there any any uh, helicopter units here that, that you know of? And the lady says, she says, yeah, they have a suite on the seventh floor. Hmm. I said, oh, okay. <clears throat> so I got, me and my buddy went up there and I knocked on the guy on the, on the door. The guy opened it up and here was my crew chief. Wow. From Vietnam, one of my crew chiefs. And he goes, hack, he says, what the hell took you so damn long? <laughs> <laughs> and he was one of the founders of the association, you know, so we, we had a hell of a night. And In between the period when you came home from Vietnam and uh, that 20-year period before you joined up with uh, some of these others, uh, some of the other soldiers who had served in, in that unit, etc., what were those years like in terms of the memories that you had from Vietnam, and, and was that a good period for you? Was it a challenging period? Were those memories difficult or or not so much at all? I don't know. I did a lot of drinking. I was a very angry young man. You know, we didn't. I didn't. I didn't talk to anybody or anything until about well, it was, it was combat veterans in at American Canada. I, I went back to American Canada, worked there again, became a heavy equipment operator or machine machine maintenance person. And there's like five other guys in my department that I started talking to, and they were combat vets. That's the only people I ever talked to anything about, it, you know, because nobody else would understand what, what you're going through, you know. 
you couldn't communicate to them. What was it that you wanted, if you could, you would have wanted people to understand? Well, you know, dealing with trauma and dealing with death and dealing with military attitude and, uh, you know, how foolish these people sounded when they talked. You know, you thought the stuff that they were talking about were kind of not important. You know, life is more important. You mentioned feelings of anger. What were you angry about, Jim? I don't know, not, not being acknowledged and being proud of what I did, you know, people not acknowledging what you did and actually respecting you. And all you heard when every time a Vietnam vet got in trouble, that's all it was those crazy goddamn drug infused Vietnam veterans that were causing all this trouble, you know, which a lot of us were in trouble because of what, what happened, you know, what people did to us and what we what they didn't do for us. And the VA was of no help at the time because they didn't understand what post-traumatic stress disorder was a, was about. They had no clue. It sounds like a very heavy burden to carry around. Well, you're dealing with people, like I said, that don't understand the attitude and how protective you are about your whole surroundings around you and how aware you are of things going on and people looking at you or talking about you. I didn't wear anything on, I didn't tell people I was a Vietnam vet and I didn't, didn't talk to them about it. So I just told him, I said, if you don't, if you don't know anything, I said, keep your pie hole shut because you can't, you can't criticize me and you can't judge me. The only person that judge me is me. So you felt, let me put it this way. Did you feel as if you didn't do something that they expected you to do and you just weren't good enough or was, was some of that thinking in there? Yeah, I, I you know, and I didn't like to be be manipulated and I didn't like to be, I didn't have somebody over my back all the time. I was very, very much a loner when I worked too because it's, I, it's a job that I did, but it was, uh, you know, pretty much me and the machine and not, not having to worry about somebody else. You know, I just wanted to do my job and get, get the day with and go home. Uh, this uh, sounds like a um, remarkably difficult way to live a life. How did you survive those years? Well, I got married the first year I was home. I got married within six months and uh, I had a lot of difficulties. Both me and my wife, I should probably would say this, but we both both had uh, we were enablers for each other because she drank and so did I. We both both had problems, and uh, it only accelerated and over the years. And uh, we had lost two children before she had, had miscarriages and, and two uh, two children before we had our first one. And I got three kids, but then the marriage only lasted twenty, actually twenty one years, and that was that was enough for both of us, I guess. Now, based on what you've described to us, somewhere along the line, something must have changed because you speak about having uh, relatively frequent contact with other veterans with whom you share and share some pretty personal things. And you have a, what sounds like a, a hopeful spirit when you speak about life, uh, when did things change from that loneliness and the anger to the what I think are some of the feelings that you're describing now? Well, after after my marriage kind of went went down to pot, uh, that was a ninety. I went to the wall in 
I joined the Vietnam Veterans of America in 1998. And the funny thing was, I I went to Shopko, if you know, or that Shopko department store. And one day, and I was looking around, and I saw this hat sitting on the wall, and it said, Vietnam vet, proud to be a Vietnam vet. And I thought, you know, I never wore anything or even thought about it. You know, I saw that, and I thought, you know, I bought that hat that day. And I thought, well, I wore that all the time, and I thought, this is great. And then in July of that year, 1988, it was the 4th of July with my two daughters, and here I saw these guys marching down the street. There's about 20 of them in camouflage with a were signed as Vietnam Veterans of America. And I thought, well, who the heck are those guys, you know? <laughs> so I followed them in the park and sat there and started talking to them and drank with them. And then I ended up joining them. So I've been a member ever since, life member. And that kind of things, things kind of, kind of started coming together at that time because I actually found some people that were shared my brotherhood, you know, and what we, we shared every over in Vietnam. And uh, I finally felt I had someone to talk to. Then in 92, we went to the wall in uh, Washington for Veterans Day. And uh, I came home and my, found my wife with another person. <laughs> and uh, so December, when only last till December 7th, I left my wife and I call it my Pearl Harbor Day. <laughs> I said, so I was, I was pretty much done with, done with living the life I was living. And I went and told my boss that I was working for it to take his job and shove it where his sun don't shine. And uh, so things things, things kind of came to a point at where life life and work were, were no longer important to me. The only thing that was important to me was Jim, you know, finding myself again, which I which I kind of did. I moved into a boarding house. And I was living in a room that was about six by nine, I thought, myself, you know, because that's all, what it really amounted to. And I drank for a while and kind of decided, well, I was going to, I called a suicide line one night and decided I was going to find out so I wanted to find a gun from somebody because I didn't want to live anymore. I think life was over with. And uh, I guess I drank them most of the night away. And I woke up next morning. I had three poems that I wrote. That's really? when my poetry kind of took it over again. And uh, I, put, <laughs> I put a notice in a singles magazine because I wanted to find another companion and, uh, that's when I got in contact with my, my second wife. I went out with a couple of gals and weren't really satisfied with, uh, my, my second wife, Susan, she, uh, met her at a restaurant one night and we sat there and we, we talked the whole time to close, actually ended up closing the restaurant. Mm. And it was a connection that I couldn't believe that was possible in, in a lifetime again. So here's a guy that is you who faced almost indescribable risks standing in the doorway of a helicopter with an M60 and seeing green tracers fly up toward him. And it, that has a huge impact on your life. And then here comes another risk. You reach inside and you talk about yourself and share yourself with somebody else. And that has a huge consequence, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Is that amazing to you? She changed my world, made me, made me alive again, made, made me feel again because I didn't, everything was so cold and I didn't, didn't have any emotions anymore. Uh, you know, uh, friends of mine had passed away and I couldn't, I couldn't cry. I didn't cry at all. I just felt numb. And how is your life now? Well, my wife passed away in January of liver cancer after 20, 
we've been together 20, well, this February would have been 27 years. And uh, so things are kind of gotten better now for these last, it's been 10 months now. So it's been, things are okay now. But uh, I just wondered if I can say, say this or not, but uh, I wrote a book. My poetry is going to be coming out within a couple of weeks. And uh, I decided to do that. I'm 72 years old. And I figured, well, it's no longer. It took me all this time to write all this down because every time I started writing, it would set me back all the time because I've been been in therapy for 17 years. Or Let's see. This is 2020. Since 2003 is when I first really started going, going to see a therapist. And uh, so I've been in therapy all this time. And all this time I've been writing writing poetry. And finally, I thought, well, okay, I, I thought I'm finished. So as my wife passed away, I haven't written anything. I haven't been able to. And she was my muse, you might say. And uh, she was my life. Well, to answer your question directly, yes, absolutely. You can mention your poetry and your book. In fact, uh, before I ask my next question, and I forget about this one, what is the title of your book? From Darkness to Light. That sounds like a pretty apt description of the way you've lived your life. It's a journey through time. It's a journey through PTSD and trauma and where I'm at now. There is or will be an influx of additional veterans returning home quite soon from, as they have been for months and years, from Afghanistan and from Iraq. We also know that there are Vietnam veterans who still have struggles with uh, their thinking and their memories, et cetera. What would you recommend to anyone in those groups regarding how to come to terms with what their experiences are and how to find some of this hopefulness that you're currently living with? They need to find help and you need to find somebody to talk to. You just you need somebody that can understand you. You know, you got to have that connection. I was very fortunate. Uh, I'll tell you this: in '92, when I was at the wall, I had a friend of mine. I had the shakes up for about six weeks after when I left there, and I had a friend give me a card for a trauma nurse who was here in West Bend, and uh, she was a trauma nurse for twenty some years, and she was doing work with veterans. And he gave me her card. I had that card in my wallet for ten years. Two thousand three, I decided to call her and make the appointment. So I went there and I stood outside for 15 minutes and she finally came down from her office and said, are you, are you ever going to come in or are you just going to stand out here? She was, she was funny to begin with, you know, but she was really, she was very excellent. And uh, so I sat there and talked to her for 45 minutes without shutting up. And she says, oh my God, she says, you've had this all inside you all these years. I said, oh, I had nobody to talk to. She wrote this all down and uh, wasn't too much longer. They determined I had PTSD. You are a courageous man, Jim. Do you see yourself that way? I never I never thought of myself as a hero. I've been the Warrior Partnership for 10 years, and uh, I do it at Agent Orangetown, Wisconsin, Agent Orangetown Hall meetings. I've been traveling around the state with a group of Vietnam veterans that we've been doing these meetings, helping families with the Agent Orange situation. Also, now we're starting to work with the Iraq and Afghan veterans and the Gulf War that's with Gulf War syndrome and toxic exposure. We're working on that now. So my wife always said, she says she was always a, a, a widow from April to October because I had so much I was going on all the time. 
because I go to the national national uh, conferences for Vietnam veterans of America, and then of course I have my helicopter reunion that I go to, and I also go to dry hooch on Fridays. We have a, be over sixty, but now we're all over seventy. So now it's all veterans group on Friday Friday mornings. And right now we're not meeting because of COVID, of course. I kind of miss doing that. But I, I always figured the best way to help myself is to help other veterans understand what was going on. That's why I wrote the book, too. Is hopefully if they read that, they can understand where I'm from and also kind of give them a direction where they're coming from and where to go from there. You know, you've probably heard this phrase that if you want to keep something, you need to give it away. And it seems to apply in your case, where if you want to keep this um, reconciliation and this uh, peacefulness that you have found, you need to give it away, which is exactly what you're doing with your outreach to other veterans from any number of different conflicts. I, I think that's amazing. You have to reach out to, uh, to others and help them along because you can't keep it all inside of yourself and, and hide it away. And, uh, you know, and that's why I've done this. And that's why I work with the Warrior Partnership, too, because Dr. McBride, you, you know, and Mike, and of course, you guys and everybody that's been there. I appreciate everything you guys do and, and all the things that you've been through, too. So part, part of the reason I wrote the poetry is because it speaks for all veterans not just for Vietnam veterans, but it's all for all veterans who suffer the same types of things of attitudes and what we've, what we've done and how we, how we get past it. You can live with it the rest of your life, but you know, it's some way of dealing with it that are better. There's a better day the next day. You know, it's always look forward, change everything to positives. I'm going to ask you for a final thought in just a minute, Jim, but first let me clarify uh, for the sake of our listeners, the Warrior Partnership is a very unique enterprise. It occurs twice a year, and it is done in conjunction with the Medical College of Wisconsin, which is located here in Milwaukee. And it features med students who will make a round eventually through the Veterans Hospital in Milwaukee and allows the medical students, uh, the residents and others to uh, meet with veterans and hear their stories what it was like in the service, the challenge that they have faced after service as a way of introducing these uh, soon-to-be doctors to some of the men and women that they will encounter as they go forth in their professions and provide medical care to veterans. So it's a very powerful program, and Jim is uh, just a, a pillar of that particular effort and has been now for years. Now, Jim, as for a wrap-up, We've covered so many things. Is there anything we didn't touch on or otherwise that you would like to add? Please feel free to do that. You know, the way I look at things, I just don't want people to sit in the darkness like I did for so many years and just hate everything and hate people. And, and you got to discover who you are. You got to have a passion in life. And I found my passion. And uh, you know, hopefully they will, too, and find their path to lightness. You know, that's the way I look at it, path to light not live in the dark. If you help others, they think you help yourself. And there is help out there for you. And uh, your friendships matter. And uh, family does matter too. I've had some pretty good friends and I still have very good friends. And uh, of course, we're all getting older now. So we got to stay in touch with each other and, and be healthy and be happy. And uh, your grandchildren and your children are your future. So don't worry about them. And 
tell them your story. Don't don't keep it to yourself, so that they know what to pass on to your next generation. Jim, I want to uh, thank you again for uh, not just your generosity in sharing your story with us and your honesty, but your willingness to trust us to hear what you have to say and share that with so many other people via this podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Well, you guys are my brothers. You guys share, we share the same history. Love you guys. We have been visiting with Jim Hackbarth, and I want to uh, extend a thank you to our audience, to the uh, Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. We appreciate your feedback and we encourage it. Please join us at www.orbanfoundationforveterans.org. On behalf of podcast hosts Mike Orban and Aaron Schroffnagel, this is Bob Bach. Our audio engineer is Mark Kaliniak. Ben Slane is our producer. The Stigma Free Vet Zone is made possible by a grant from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation. Thank you all for listening.